0: hi this is mikey mcgovern and you're listening to new books in science technology and society a podcast on the new books network scholars of slavery have been arguing for decades that writing off slave-based economic systems as pre-modern creates an artificial sense of moral distance. In a word, we need to appreciate the continuities between racialized slaveholding and the ostensibly neutral economic practices that succeeded it to understand how what Cedric J. Robinson called racial capitalism persists to this day. Caitlin Rosenthal, Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley, addresses these issues from the lens of business history in her new book, Accounting for Slavery, published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Working from plantation records from the 18th century West Indies through American Reconstruction, Rosenthal recasts the history of modern management, usually narrated from the factory floors of Manchester and Lowell, as a darker history of data and human capital. Arguing that abolition was as much a form of market regulation as a human rights movement, and that the practices formalized as scientific management by Frederick Winslow Taylor drew on long-standing logics of extraction by slave owners, she raises the ethical stakes of modern business education. Like many authors, the project came to Rosenthal as she worked through sources in graduate school that her previous training had predisposed her towards.
1: So, uh, as I suppose is often the case, it was a bit of a long road getting to my specific topic. Um, as I sometimes tell people, I think it's the first line in the book, I didn't intend to write a book about slavery. I had right out of undergrad been working as a management consultant for McKinsey and Company, and I was the like junior person on the teams who was in a basement conference room, typing on spreadsheets, kind of figuring out what the data could tell us about making businesses more profitable. And that experience really made me curious about the ways quantitative knowledge change how we think um, about people in a business environment. So how employers think about their employees, how capital thinks about labor. Um, And I got really interested in how those ideas got transcribed in things that looked like um, spreadsheets, primitive spreadsheets during the 19th century. So I went to graduate school, I started reading account books, and looking for moments of change uh, to try to understand how scale changed the way uh, managers thought about labor. And in the process of that research, somebody handed me a copy of Thomas Affleck's plantation record and account book, which is a detailed southern plantation account book. It was used uh, unevenly, but the most carefully completed versions of this book were at least as uh, detailed and comprehensive as the best books I'd looked at for northern factories. So I got interested in trying to understand that relationship between management and labor, but on on the slave plantation, and specifically through the lens of quantification.
0: By focusing on business practices, Rosenthal cuts across a wide range of histories grounded in local imperial dynamics, allowing readers to see the evolution of large business debates.
1: So as I was reading plantation account books and reading records from s- slavery periods, um, I was always bringing the kind of training of a b- business historian. I had done most of my uh, coursework in business history, and I was bringing the questions of business. And so as I was looking at plantation account books, I was seeing things that scholars have pointed to as massive innovations in business history. So for example, the rise of the multidivisional corporation, the separation of management and labor, the rise of scientific and management and productivity analysis, so as I started to frame out the book, I decided I wanted to organize it around these massive business innovations. Um, and I, it also unfolds in chronological order. Um, we begin in the West Indies in the late 18th century and end up in the late antebellum period in the American South and then eventually in emancipation. But each chapter unfolds um, in a business debate. Uh, in The first one is about the multidivisional corporation, the second is about standardization, the third is about something that looks a lot like scientific management, and then the fourth chapter is about depreciation and cost accounting. And I wanted to do that because it let me both explore the plantation records in detail, but also to connect them to the ways um, people in the late 20th century and early 21st century talk about management and think about how talking about slavery could change contemporary conversations about management practices.
0: What does it mean to say that scientific management has a longer history? I asked Rosenthal to clarify what in her work she saw as a distinctive challenge to our narrative of American business development.
1: The scientific management story is in a way what originally brought me to the project. I've mentioned a couple of times these records of cotton picking, how much cotton did every slave pick every day. And there's slave narratives that say sometimes cotton was weighed up to three times a day. There are narratives that say planters ran contests to see how fast enslaved people could pick and then use the results of those contests to set picking targets. And all of these strategies sound a lot like things that are used during scientific management. You're going to manipulate incentives to figure out the maximum amount of labor a person can do and require him to perform that maximum. And this is, in one way, um, a really important for, point for me. But in another way, it's one, a point that's been made many, many times before, um, where scholars of slavery and econ- the economic historians of slavery have pointed out these similarities. And yet, when we talk about the kind of origins of American business, we end up talking about railroads and steam engines, not slavery. And I mean, for me, the stakes are really about um, what kinds of, what's relevant to conversations about modern management practices. Um, How do we construct those narratives in ways that allow us to ask questions about coercion and violence, as well as questions about innovation, innovation, or maybe even questions about how coercion and innovation are connected. And... I think um, drawing these connections and pointing out that slavery was doing some of these things earlier um, hopefully not only changes the way we understand slavery, but also the ways we think about modern management practices.
0: For our readers less acquainted with business history, I asked Rosenthal about how her work challenges a major historiographical framework, the organizational synthesis focused on how vertical and horizontal control were achieved within business enterprises.
1: So you you could date the organizational synthesis historiographically to a variety of periods, but I mean, specific texts. But for me, the conversation sort of begins with Alfred Chandler um, and his book, The Visible Hand, because Chandler has, um, in his discussion of the importance of managerialism and the M-form and Hierarchy, also a short passage on the history of slavery. And this has got to be the most important business history book of the 20th century, um, and probably into the the 21st. And he has this, this part where he calls slavery a uh, fundamentally ancient uh, institution. And he does this right after saying that that plantation overseers were some of the first salaried managers in the country, and also after saying that the South had very little invested capital. But then he explains in his footnotes that he's removed slaves from that invested capital. So once you kind of took those two pieces and then connected them to what I was seeing in the account books, I began to think really more broadly about whether you know the s- story that Chandler was objecting to was almost right there between the lines in his own work.
0: Accounting and record keeping have a long history and are central features of the economic transformations of early modern Europe. Rosenthal argues that the needs of Atlantic slavery drove the sophistication of these practices into forms that contemporary practitioners might recognize.
1: Um, you know, people like to say that uh, double-entry bookkeeping dates to Luca Pacioli in like 15, around the year 1500, um, and they like to chart the trajectory of double-entry bookkeeping, And the way I'm defining accounting is quite a bit broader uh, to include all kinds of records that are used for the internal management of a plantation. So records of labor, time books, uh, cash books, all kinds of books, some of which are included in double entry systems and some of which are not. And while there are earlier examples of these, I argue that the kind of Atlantic plantation complex influences their sophistication. And it's not like plantation accounting practices are developing in, in Jamaica and going back to England. It's rather that the process of having important long-distant reports for very large enterprises um, it influences the development of new techniques for carrying information. And in particular, during this, the 1700s, as planters are returning to England to run their plantations as absentees they're leaving behind instructions for uh, managers on how they want plantations to be run and also what kind of reports they want to receive. So these long distance management settings kind of bring a need for detailed reporting.
0: Scholars of slavery grapple with the problem of structure versus agency. And I asked Rosenthal how this persistent debate shaped her own thought and writing.
1: Yeah, so for at least the past several decades and even before, there's a huge emphasis on uncovering um enslaved culture, on uncovering enslaved resistance, um and using a lot of the same records that I have finding ways that enslaved people actually were able to shape their world. And that was countering, uh, you know, previous scholarship that really that painted enslaved people as if they were um, sometimes stereotypes of how they uh, of what we now know they were, and scholars really showed that you could get a lot more about the enslaved experience and about enslaved culture and and family out of the archives um, but my work is is about control, so it 's about the in a way the opposite about that it 's about all of the barriers that were set up for enslaved people to not control their work, to not control their families, to not control their communities. And my goal in the work is then not to undermine all of that really useful scholarship, but to bring the kind of lens back around and remind people of the kind of strength of the slave system in oppressing people. Uh, that is to say, the, you know, if we have all these studies of enslaved agency and of culture and community, then we can begin to, to miss the picture of what slavery was, which was a, extremely uh, violent uh, system of control. And not only a violent system of control, but a system of control that's becoming increasingly modern. So you said information systems. So in a way, that's my way of reconciling these two stories. We have a story that says slavery was getting stronger in the late antebellum period. And we have a story that says slaves were resisting everywhere. So how are these two stories compatible? They're compatible because planters are developing information systems and management systems that make their methods of controlling enslaved people ever, ever more sophisticated. Um, so they, they're able to maintain control through new ways, um, even though enslaved people, as we know from all this research, are always resisting this, um, this control.
0: Slavery was not merely about direct oppression and physical violence on the part of free white foremen or owners. Central to this account is how a system of incentives and control worked internally within plantations.
1: I think this is one of the things that brought me into the West Indies. because I mean, not only because the more I've researched, the more important the West Indies are, but the West Indies, you have these massive plantations. So say 2,000 enslaved people spread across a dozen plantation units some of which are 500 enslaved people each and on those uh, individual plantations there are really only a handful of free white managers now those people have a in a way a monopoly on terror they have access to violence and weapons that enslaved people don't but still you have you know 10 or so sometimes fewer Free whites trying to maintain control over 400 people and being remarkably successful in doing so. And then, as you begin to reconstruct the organizational structure of the plantation, it becomes clearer how they've done this. So, they have incentivized a subset of people to be drivers. Uh, they've have sometimes, you know, twice as many people as they have free whites simply employed as watchmen. There's a, a on Parnassus Plantation, one of the ones I write about in Jamaica, there are 18. Uh, enslaved watchmen. And those enslaved watchmen are seem to be carefully selected. There's a head watchman and then watchmen under him who are all, um, many of them are, are injured or elderly. So they're not really able to resist, but they are able to watch over other slaves. They're assigned to specific places. Um, and even so, planters talk about how they can't trust them, but they also know that they can't maintain control without them.
0: Absenteeism, the management of owned property at a distance, was another central feature of the plantation system in the West Indies, one that required a great deal of data to function.
1: So to give just one example, um, one of the most striking surviving records I have for plantations are these monthly reports that plantations in Jamaica and British Guiana would send back to absentee owners in England. Now, these are pre-formatted, single-page sheets. But within the space of a single page, they record what every enslaved person is doing on every day on the plantation, not by name, but as a tally. They have a short diary for any exceptional events. They have increase and decrease uh, of enslaved people. So births and deaths and sometimes sales uh, and purchases. And all of this information is condensed and sent, folded up into a neat little bundle sent across the ocean. And the planter could have opened it up and used it to compare to other plantations, to compare to the same plantation from the previous years. It's difficult to know exactly what they were doing, but we do know that they wrote back with questions, um, and they could attempt to exercise control over a distance. Now, obviously, that's a different kind of control than you can exercise on the ground, um, but in another way, it's a similar kind of control to any that someone was exercising over any kind of large organization. They're using data as an indicator for problems that might come or opportunities they might be able to pursue.
0: A major strength of Rosenthal's account is her focus on print culture, a key feature of early standardization.
1: So the book makes a case for forms being exceptionally important to the spread of accounting on plantations. Um, If you... Beginning around the 1780s, I have examples of these pre-formatted fill-in-the-blanks account books. So this would be an account book that has many different forms inside of it, and you ask your manager or overseer to fill in those forms, um, and therefore you're going to get a complete record of what was happening. Now, the very early examples are very scattered and are quite uneven, but by the Late 1840s and the 1850s, you have competing volumes of account books. The most prominent one is published by Thomas Affleck, and they become these kind of all in one, fill in the blanks books. And I make a number of arguments about these in the books, uh, but but there are, I think, two that I would want to highlight. One is that this really helped planters to maintain control, despite the fact that their overseers or the other people they might hire might not be able to do accounting particularly well. So they enable them to push anyone who could read an ad to keep a detailed account that gives them oversight of the overseer and gives the overseer oversight of the enslaved people and gives the planter visibility all the way down. And then the second thing that's really important about forms um, is that they, you know, it's it's difficult to underestimate the, their importance for any time you're collecting a lot of information and trying to use it. So, Planters, I've seen records where planters try to rule their own forms and keep track of, say, how much cotton every p- slave picked every day. And when they keep this note, these notes in the margins, they never get to a high level of data. But when they keep them in pre-formatted, organized proto-spreadsheets, they're able to record an extremely large amount of detail. And then they're able to take that detail, condense it into smaller numbers, um, and then move those numbers around. And so sometimes moving them around might just be on the page in terms of their calculations, but sometimes it's sending them across the Atlantic. And when they do that, um, these blank forms actually end up transmitting not just the data they contain, but I think the accounting practices that go with them.
0: I asked Rosenthal to what extent planters thought of themselves as experts.
1: As yeah, Southerners write into agriculture magazines, treating them kind of like you know, you would think of a trade magazine where they're sharing advice and they're sharing the data that they collect in a sense in order to set benchmarks or expectations for how much labor they should be able to search, attract, extract from enslaved people. Uh, one of the publishers of the plantation account books I mentioned earlier, Thomas Affleck, he writes in his letters that, you know, not only would individuals benefit from using these books, but the whole South is going to benefit if there are they're scattered across the countryside because you're going to have... Uh, comparable data that can be analyzed and shared across different plantations.
0: Since part of her intervention is based in deprioritizing the novelty of factory labor management, I asked Rosenthal what was at stake in the contrast.
1: Well, so there's two things that stand out from the comparisons. One is that there's a big difference in the level of standardization. Um, So the Southern books, I think, are more standard and more which means that their average level is higher, but they're sometimes less carefully adapted to the specific needs of the business, which you will see in Northern factories. But that, that actually, that's not the most important thing. I think the important, most important thing is what you just mentioned, which is the importance of turnover in Northern factories. Um, so I, I started my research looking at, at factories in Lowell, Massachusetts, textile mills, where I would have thought that the accounting practices would have been the, the best And there are elements of those records that are very sophisticated. But on the other hand, if you read time books and labor logs, the thing that's most striking is that people lay out these neat grids and set out to fill them in, and then workers quit all over the place. Um, Other scholars have documented that turnover in a lot of these could be 100 plus percent a year, sometimes 200 percent a year. And... The account books really brought home to me what that meant from a data analysis perspective. Um, you know, if you're trying to figure out how much work a person can do in a day, it, it becomes, I mean, it's 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 just absolutely impossible and it's and not very useful if they just keep quitting. If you can't even keep people on the job, then how are you going to kind of push up their pace of labor? And these are problems that planters didn't have to deal with. They uh, didn't have to recruit labor. They didn't have to entice it to stay. They did. Um, They, of course, had to negotiate on some level, uh, but the most amazing thing about Southern records of cotton picking is that every slave is included almost every single day. In the North, you have grids optimistically laid out that are full of marginalia and blanks where workers simply refuse to be measured in the ways that account keepers are envisioning. And in the South, you have um, thousands of data points. Uh, And there are, of course, gaps in the data, but the gaps are much, much less than in northern records. I I was talking with someone else who works on, I can't remember who, on 19th century tables, and they were remarking on how often it is to see a table that's optimistically laid out and largely blank. Um, Somebody thinks I can just, has this vision for information. Um, Like you go look at the early census schedules and they're just these massive tables. And then they end up being not, not completed. And the most striking thing about some of these account books, especially when it comes to labor productivity, is that they are well completed. And even when you don't know how much work was done, you sometimes know why.
0: Another feature of Rosenthal's argument concerns abolition as a kind of market regulation, which I asked her to elaborate upon.
1: Well, one of the things that's, uh, I think, striking about the processes of abolition in the Caribbean as they're happening over time is that slavery being abolished in one location doesn't actually mean that that slaveholder doesn't find a way to take what they know and move elsewhere. Um, So after one of the people who I follow from the Caribbean to the U.S. South is a Scotsman named Farquhar McRae, and he's a plantation manager in the Caribbean. um, And he doesn't actually own that many uh, enslaved people. He gets a payout at emancipation for a small amount. And then he takes his money to Florida and he sets himself up as an agricultural expert there. And he writes into the Southern agricultural press saying that we should be keeping our account books in this way because it's going to lead us to be more productive. So he's... Uh, you know, the mo- abolition ha- in one way affects him, but in another way, he's just looking out at the Caribbean and the American South, and he's a kind of entrepreneurial arbitrageur who sees that his skills are going to be in demand in Florida, and he takes them and sets up in a new location.
0: By this point in our conversation, it is pretty difficult to question the extent to which slavery was data driven. With current debates over information policy and racialized surveillance in mind, I asked Rosenthal how these accounts could be put to abolitionist ends.
1: Well, I think the data is so interesting because it's it's like already slippery in the time period. As I've worked on the project, sometimes people ask me, you know, doesn't this just illustrate the, val- the violence of numbers? And then the interesting thing about the data and the example you said, you mentioned, is that the same data that was useful to a planter to increase his profits could turn into evidence against abolition if it, it was in different hands. So there's one example that I uh, write about for the West Indies where a plantation account book, it falls into the hands of abolitionists. The abolitionists do an analysis of mortality rates on the plantation and they use the journal uh, to excoriate West Indian planters. They then deposit the journal uh, In with a bookseller and say if you don't believe this, you can go consult the original source. And another interesting usage, um, though this is not from abolitionists, but rather from ameliorationists who are trying to improve the circumstances of slavery, and in some ways were thus making slavery stronger, is that they're interested in using account books as a way to control slaveholders' violence. So in a way to make the system um, less terrifying, and they, for example, begin to require records of punishment. And those records are really interesting because on the one hand, they're absolutely horrifying because they enumerate in detail that you rarely find in other records, the kind of lashes or the solitary confinement that's stole out to enslaved people. But on the other hand, they're actually being used to reduce the amount of those, those punishments.
0: Moving from Atlantic to antebellum slavery, Rosenthal shows how the intensification of cotton production was tied to increased control and experimentation.
1: So for me, when I look at these account books, you can see the way that all these factors are intertwined. Um, There's been debates about why cotton became so much, cotton planting became so much more productive and why labor picking cotton became so much more productive during the antebellum period. And the alternatives have seemed to be Bio, biology, crop innovations, or violence and labor innovations, and I see the two as kind of deeply connected. For example, um, if you think about uh, the seasonality of cotton production, uh, one of the things that allowed cotton planters to be productive was that cotton and corn were countercyclical. Um, you need labor at opposite types of the, times of the year, so therefore you can grow food one season and grow your cash crop in the other season. And it's not just a kind of environmental coincidence that these are count, these are seasonal. You actually see planters experimenting with seasonality, trying out different varieties of cotton and corn and looking for complementarity. So it's not just that they're seasonal, they're seasonal by design. Um, and they're seasonal by design in part because planters have control over enslaved people all year round. They have control over enslaved people um, in ways that makes it like allows them to push up the pace of labor and it makes sense for them to do particular kinds of innovations. Um, So I think, you know, planters have this improving scientific outlook that is underpinned by their control over enslaved labor and that leads them to innovate in a lot of other ways. Um, And once you kind of confront the account books themselves, you see them running these experiments and it's, it's always more than one factor.
0: I asked Rosenthal to unpack how advanced calculation techniques impacted the valuation of human lives, a practice that intensified, as other scholars have shown, after the slave trade was abolished in 1807.
1: Just to go in through the book, the fourth chapter of the book kind of iterates through a bunch of different ways that uh, slaveholders and slave traders sought to value enslaved people. Um, They don't call it human capital, but that's what they're doing. They're calculating their capital invested in lives. They're calculating its appreciation and depreciation from year to year, and they're using that to think about their profitability. So they do this on inventories. They do this by rating people as fractions of a hand. They say this person's a quarter hand, this person's a half hand, and then they add up those people to arrive at a certain number of prime hand equivalents that can be set uh, uh, equal to other hands. And then they rate people in... um, the process of getting them ready for sale. They grade them into like extraordinary first rate, second rate, um, uh, and then price them accordingly. So they do all of these different things. And at each, each way, they're able to develop calculative systems that I think serve their business needs quite effectively. And they really look at many points like they're pushing towards fungibility. And in this way, I think it's really compatible with accounts like those of Walter Johnson, especially because when you start to peel back the layers of fungibility, you realize that underneath the calculations, what's more important than the data is planters' power. So they're treating enslaved people as commodities when it's convenient to do so. In some ways, enslaved people are able to resist this. But what's more striking to me is that enslaved people can't even access their own prices as commodity goods. And the evidence for this is can be found in occasional cases for manumission, where planters switch from talking about enslaved people as if they're interchangeable to talking about them as if they're priceless. Um, They talk about them as if they're unique and irreplaceable goods, and therefore they're unwilling to let them purchase their own lives at the same price that a planter might have paid. So they shift between commodification and fungibility and absolute individuality. And of course, enslaved people don't have any of that freedom to shift between these different genres of price. The other thing that I think became really clear to me and is really related is that as you peel back calculations, you discover that while on one level, planters are calculating so they can earn more profits, especially as the decades pass and the Civil War approaches, they also realize that if they want to preserve their property, it's less about calculation and more about political power, more about lobbying. They know that as Henry Clay puts it, that is property which the law declares to be property. And no matter how much calculation they do about their rate of profit, um, if they aren't also able to pass laws to preserve that, that property, then no amount of calculation is going to, to preserve it.
0: Rosenthal also contends with Reconstruction, or how freed people were managed differently than when they were slaves.
1: The thing that was most striking to me as I ventured into the Reconstruction-era books, which is only something I did at the very end of the project, was that the, the record I've singled out as being the most distinctive record of uh, antebellum American slavery, the record of Cotton Pick, totally disappears. So those relentless records of every slave, every day, how many pounds, um, are all but... Um, I mean, I haven't found any for the for 1865 1870 there are a few that were that reappear in like the 20th century once um when sometimes uh, planters are paying piece rates to uh, people during the peak season to get them to pick more so sometimes you find them like 50 years later but during the reconstruction period they absolutely disappear Uh, and so why do they disappear this is difficult difficult to pin down but it's quite seems quite clear that planters wish that they could keep them they're their first contracts um, and their, their, the sentiments they express as they complain about enslaved people suggest that they would have loved to continue to have patterns of labor look very similar to the way they did under slavery. So it seems to me that enslaved people are just refusing this minute level of surveillance. Um, and another piece of evidence for this is that you know planters continue to use that fractional hand rating system in sharecropping crop, and tenant arrangements sometimes, but you have a disappearance of the quarter hands, you know, suggesting that like children's labor is being withdrawn from under the planter's surveillance. So my interpretation is that enslaved people had to be, to submit to this kind of measuring and monitoring. And for them, part of what freedom meant was to get out of that um, minute management relationship. Now, of course, this is not such a happy story as to be just getting out of surveillance because planters do reestablish control through other means. They manage to reestablish their profits uh, and they are eventually able to you know, establish with many of the freed people debt relations so that enslaved people don't actually get any kind of economic independence or much economic independence at all, but they are able to escape from that constant surveillance of the scale. So it's a kind of bittersweet story. On the one hand, what did it mean to be free? And it meant to be free from the constant surveillance of a planter and his scale and his whip. But on the other hand, it didn't mean the kind of economic independence that it should have.
0: I asked Rosenthal to situate how she sees her book relative to the boon of interest in the history of capitalism and what she saw as the takeaways of this historiographical shift. I also wanted to know what she saw as the main takeaways for business history, her native discipline.
1: On one level, I kind of studiously avoid the word capitalism. I think it crops up a couple of times and I give a a definition in a footnote um, because I think the word itself can be confusing. But I think the more important project of the history of capitalism is to really interrogate where we draw the lines between what we think of as modern capitalism and what we think of as pre-modern or distant sites of analysis. And the goal of a study like this one is by getting into the account books, you can see how false that boundary is between, you know, artificially considering Lowell Mills to be part of our modern narrative and pushing slavery aside as something that was, you know, in but not of Uh, capitalism or adjacent to capitalism, actually is something that's very closely embedded in the economy we call capitalism. And whether you think it's, you know, in but not of, or at the heart of, you have to consider it anytime you're analyzing that system. So anytime we're thinking about uh, capitalism, we need to be thinking about labor coercion. That doesn't mean that every capitalist system is based on labor coercion, but lots of historical systems that um, we like to call capitalism are immediately adjacent to or deeply intertwined with violence. And it's just not possible to draw some kind of line between one and the other and study one and not the other and remember one and not the other. Um, On your other question about business history, I I mean, I'm super optimistic. The Business History Conference is an awesome conference. And when I started going there a decade ago, there weren't very many people working on slavery. Uh, Now there's lots of people working on slavery. Now there's lots of people working on... um, Bad business. It's a really welcoming group of people that I think wants to be deeply connected with the history of capitalism, with the labor history. And it does so by thinking about business firms in a traditional way, a la Alfred Chandler, but also by thinking about firms and societies and culture. Um, I think it's a great field. And if you have listeners who are who are history grad students, they should come.
0: Finally, I asked Rosenthal what her next projects are looking like.
1: So there are um, two things that I'm working on right now. Um, One is something that's a direct offshoot from this. It's about the history of surveillance on the plantation. Um, You know, there's a little bit in the book about the role of enslaved watchmen, and I have some really rich sources on that. So I'm interested in who those people were, how planters coerced them into surveilling other enslaved people against their will, and then also how they became dangerous and were important players in resistance on the plantation. So that's a small project, but I think one that really grew out of the book. Uh, The other thing I'm interested in um, is the history of business education. I'm writing about the history of for-profit commercial colleges that were offering education to accountants and bookkeepers in the late 19th century. And I'm just interested in what kind of quantitative skills they taught, but also how they wrapped them all up with different kinds of often ethical and moral lessons in a way that seems quite foreign um, to modern business uh, education. Though, though, I think that's probably too much of a statement, over, too much of an overstatement, but they, they wrap up their data in ethical lessons in a way that's interesting and peculiar, and I wanna explore that.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been New Books in Science, Technology and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network.